Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue in our series on the second half of American history with podcast episode number 51. In episode 50, we examined from beginning through to the end series of events called the Watergate scandal. Again, named after the hotel complex that still stands under the same name in Washington, D.C. So we looked at the beginning of that with what became known as the Pentagon Papers. We looked at Richard Nixon's reaction to the headlines that he was seeing that was criticizing him, criticizing his administration, getting more and more concerned that he would lose the election in 1972 to get to the point that he would essentially take the Constitution that he was sworn to uphold, move it away temporarily in order to interfere with the investigation, which our separation of powers, of course, demands a response to when that is done. In other words, when the law is broken. So because of that, we looked at the downfall of that, the unbelievable chain of events that he not only would win the 1972 presidential election, he would win it in an absolute landslide, winning 49 of the 50 states. And then from there, we then looked at the uh, announcer, his resignation on August 9th, 1974, effective at noon. So we ended where I mentioned about how distrust was being further fueled by this major scandal, yet at the same token, it was also a constitutional lesson, not only in the separation of powers, but that what our founding fathers wrote in that constitution succeeded once again in getting around this significant impasse with a president who momentarily put himself above the law. So this is when we get into the last part of this, which I would just like to, because this scandal fueled further distrust in the federal government, I wanted to then shed light on the late Senator Fred Dalton Thompson, who was a presidential candidate in 2008 for a short period of time, but nevertheless, as Dalton Thompson, him, Fred Dalton Thompson himself, was part of the Watergate investigation, what's interesting is when he wrote later on that in order for future presidents or for future impeachment trials to begin, much less to quote unquote be successful against the president, he essentially outlined four things that would need to be in place for impeachment to go through. The first would be low public opinion polls, the president's low standing in public opinion. The second would be a faltering, if not an outright bad economy. 
And the third thing would be a hostile media, a media that seemed to be antagonistic from the president's point of view. So those are three out of the four things. Anything by chance listeners missing in that? Wait a minute. A president can be impeached because of whatever the actual accusation was. Number one, low opinion polls, a bad, two, bad economy, three, a hostile media. Hello? How about some incontrovertible evidence here? And yes, that is the fourth thing that Senator Fred Thompson had said. But think about that, though. You and I get hauled into a courtroom accused by the government of wrongdoing. The only thing that matters is the incontrovertible evidence. When we are standing in a court of law, it doesn't matter what about low public opinion polls for politicians. It doesn't matter whether the Dow is skyrocketing with a booming economy or it's plummeting because of a lousy economy. The press, if they're even paying any attention to us at all, barely would make any of the pages in the front section of a newspaper, much less the front page. None of those things matter to John and Jane Q public. But it does when that John or Jane happens to have the title President of the United States. So consider those four things. I will revisit that in the remaining podcasts because, again, with President Richard Nixon avoiding impeachment, which most likely would have gone through, would have gone to the Senate where they most likely would have removed from him from office. Yes, he did escape impeachment, but the fact that he had to resign would always be an albatross around his presidential rankings going forward. So President Gerald Ford was sworn in at 12.01 p.m. on August 9th, 1974. He was, not a myth, the one man who did not want either office, the vice presidency or the presidency, and also two offices, which he was not elected to either. And yes, in some cases, as I demonstrate to my students, that really, quote unquote, tripped him up, end quote. In other words, if you want to look into a YouTube video or just do a YouTube search for President Ford tripping, sadly, you will see a couple, if not more, examples of President Ford tripping going up the stairs of Air Force One, tripping coming down the stairs of Air Force One, unfortunately. And it it could put the guy, it make it seem as though that he was a real klutz when he was anything but. He was a very, very good uh, football player at the University of Michigan. He was also an astounding uh, snow skier to the point that after he had tripped a couple of times and he told the Secret Service that he wanted to go to Colorado uh, for uh, skiing, They all more or less looked at one another like, this guy is serious. He can barely uh, stand up straight in his own two shoes. Now he's going to put on a set of skis. Nevertheless, the president got what he wanted. He went skiing, and the Secret Service could barely keep up with him. He was a very, very good skier. So within coming coming into office on that infamous day of right after uh, Nixon's resignation and leaving office, he quickly learned that the country essentially was not going to let him govern because in a lot of ways the country wasn't willing to move on. Nixon, you may be out of office, but there was still plenty of blood in the water in which the Democrats wanted their due diligence. They wanted their pound of flesh for the wrongdoing that he had committed. And very few Republicans were going to stand in to defend him uh, out of fear, of course, of going down with his ne- with his ship of a bad or negative reputation. 
So after the first several weeks of Ford's administration, he found out that he really was finding it impossible to get anything done. It's as though he was in a policy straitjacket as the press just continued to fawn over the Nixon, the final days of the Nixon, Nixon administration. Of course, there was also massive question marks as to President Ford, are you going to pardon uh, President Nixon? And he would not answer until, of all days, September 8th, 1974, just one full month after Richard Nixon announced his resignation. September 8th was a Sunday, and I'm stressing that for a reason, because the White House press corps generally is staffed by non-regulars to the White House press corps. So and these are people that might be new to the job or have not been there long enough, certainly not senior reporters, because again, it's a weekend, not much happens. And the press, a small group of the press was following the president to church with his wife, Betty, and is coming out of church as he was getting out of, into the presidential limousine. One of the press reporters, of course, asked him for the umpteenth time, President Ford, do you ever anticipate pardoning Richard Nixon? And Ford looked back at the reporter and said, yes, I plan on pardoning President Richard Nixon and leaves the church. And he got into the limousine, which pulled away from the church. The press was stunned, looking at one another, more or less trying to double check, did they hear that right, as all of them scrambled to find a payphone to get it into the reporting newsroom so that they could get the headline out as quickly as possible. In retrospect, listeners, it was the right thing to do, but it was President Ford's biggest mistake. And clearly, good luck finding a political scientist or historian that will not say that the pardoning of President Richard Nixon essentially cost President Ford the 1976 election. But President Ford put country before party and put party before his own personal ambition. He knew that the stakes were, were going to be high and that the deck would be stacked against him if he pardoned Richard Nixon. But as I say, it was the right thing to do. Why? Let's look at it in a couple of ways, legal slash scandal from that standpoint, political scandal. Was Richard Nixon really going to be found not only guilty, because he clearly could have been found guilty in a court of law, but was he really going to go to jail? Was he going to jump in an orange jumpsuit and go to prison? Was the country really going to do that? And it's not as though, again, it means he's, he's in the right. Pardoning doesn't mean, hey, look at that. We, we jumped to the wrong conclusions. You were innocent all along. Not at all. All that pardon did is allowed President Ford to govern now as the 38th president of the United States. He had to get the scandal off of the headlines. He found it difficult to lead for domestic policy. He found it difficult trying to negotiate with foreign leaders for international in international relations. He did the right thing. So again, that's from a political slash legal perspective. But I also said, though, that Ford put nation before party and party before person, before his own ambition. And that's the other reason he did the right thing. Listeners, 
from a personal level, Watergate nearly killed Richard Nixon. And politics aside, whether you're a diehard liberal Democrat or an arch conservative and has a picture of Richard Nixon on the wall, as Alex P. Keaton did in the sitcom Family Ties, Nixon already paid the ultimate humiliating price of having to resign to the point afterwards that the resignation nearly killed him. It put him into the hospital. It drove up his drinking consumption of alcohol. And you might say, hey, Chris, that's not our problem. I get that. But when Ford considered pardoning Nixon, Ford sent out two advisors to meet President Nixon at his home to discuss the idea of a potential pardon. The idea that Ford became vice president and a secret deal that if Richard Nixon resigned, he'd get, he would get pardoned. There is no evidence that I've ever come across that there was a backroom deal because again, Ford didn't want the vice presidency. Remember too, that all the president could do would be nominate somebody. The Senate had to confirm. So again, as I say, this, the, the odds are against any kind of backroom deal between Ford and Nixon. Nixon, again, is back home, and these two advisors show up at his house at some point in late August, roughly two to three weeks into Ford's term. They knock on the door, and please listen to this carefully. There's a reason I share this story. They knock on the door, ring the doorbell, and Richard Nixon's wife, Pat, answers the door. Good morning, Mrs. Nixon. We're here to see your husband. Husband? Yes, Mr. Nixon. Don't know what you're talking about. Close the door. Both guys knocked on the door again. She answered, yes. Uh, Ma'am, we're here to see Mr. Nixon, please. Shuts the door on him again. Finally, one of the advisors says, wait a minute. Let's try this one more time and let me do the talking. Rings the doorbell. She answers the door, literally like she was just seeing the guys for the first time. Ma'am, we're here to see President Richard Nixon. Certainly, please come in. Keep this in mind as the story goes along. They're led into the house. They're put in, seated in the parlor, waiting to see the president. There's no reason to wait, folks, but they were waiting to see the president. When they walked into the president's office, both advisors were absolutely aghast at what they saw in front of them. The office was a large rectangle, but everything around the room was set up as though the office was in the shape of an oval, not a rectangle. What's more is when they approached the president who was released from the hospital not too long before, they could not believe the ghost of the man that they once knew so well. The suit that Richard Nixon had worn many times literally hung on a skinned skeletal frame. The massive bags underneath his eyes, the tremors in both hands that were uncontrollable. The gist of the meeting is not as important as that reaction that they shared with President Ford when they came back. No, I'm not trying to say that President Ford pardoned Nixon out of sympathy, but if they pressed ahead with the investigation, eventually dragging Richard Nixon to court, most likely the president would, have, would not have survived.
Again, as I said, he paid his price. And likewise, because of those actions of pardoning Richard Nixon, Ford would also pay that price. If there was not enough nails in Ford's coffin to make him a one-term president when it came to pardoning, it wouldn't stop there because President Ford then pardoned almost all draft resistors to the Vietnam War. What I'm getting at between all of these presidential pardons is from what we historians and political scientists can gather when reading the Constitution of the United States, reading President Madison's notes of the Constitutional Convention, as he was the primary record keeper, we can only surmise what the Founding Fathers meant by giving the President of the United States the ability to pardon. I would like to think that pardoning a former president who was beyond humiliated already might have been what they meant. But I also feel that the, pre that the pardoning of draft resistors was as much a possibility and what the Founding Fathers meant in the same way that President George Washington pardoned all of the resistors and rebels that participated in the Whiskey Rebellion in Washington's time in office. Because of this, however, does not mean that what the Founding Fathers said would make everybody or felt or wrote would make everybody feel better. In fact, far from it. There is no doubt again that the pardoning of Nixon and the Vietnam draft resistors, which again in retrospect was the right thing to do, ultimately, as I say, Nixon Ford would pay the price of that. Because of this, the election of 1976, in some cases, were going to be a lot of voters who could have cared less who the Democratic challenger was going to be as long as they could vote against President Ford. In, with his roughly inability to try to govern to get the job done and try to get those headlines off of the scandals of the draft dodgers and President Nixon, he was hoping that with all of those pardons that he would be able to move forward and attempt to govern the country. But mind you, it is at this time that the United States is under suffering a severe recession due to the unbelievably high oil prices that was coming from oil coming out of the Middle East. So Ford, in some cases, was the right man at the right time to do the right thing politically and for the good of the country. But personally, he could not have been president of a member of the Republican Party, arguably at a worse time. So the, the Democrats nominate James Earl Carter, better known as Jimmy Carter, while the Republicans reluctantly renominate Ford for his or nominate Ford for his first whole run for the presidency of the United States. The reason I say reluctantly is because there was a lot of talk that the gov former governor of California, a man by the name of Ronald Reagan, was also attempting to throw his hat in the ring. And it looked as though, especially in the presidential primaries, that Reagan was going to best Gerald Ford. In the end, 
Ford, with the power of incumbency, won all of the votes, the number of votes necessary to secure the Republic, as they call, clinch the nomination for the Republican Party to run for president the following November, to try to heal the rifts that were already digging deeper in the Republican Party. Ronald Reagan agreed to go on stage and verbally in front of everybody concede the victory and give it to Gerald Ford and ask for the supporters to rally around the president. And that was the Republican National Committee's arguably largest mistake of the presidential season of 1976. When Ronald Reagan went out there, everybody was standing and cheering for the man to the point that he had to wait several minutes before they quieted down. He then gave a rallying cry to the Republican voters out there support to support Jimmy Carter, excuse me, yeah, that's good, support Jimmy Carter, to support Gerald Ford, our incumbent Republican president, who did the right thing with these pardons throughout the his time in office. And we need now to come together and rally around our president so that he can win his first full term. The reaction of the crowd was not booing, but it wasn't exactly supportive. But then Reagan ended with his Reagan-esque way of once again looking at the crowd and giving that confident smile that we will get through this and we will win this election. Once again, the crowd jumped onto their feet, rallying him as he walked off the stage, when at that moment, President Ford looked at his advisors and essentially asked, why the hell did you put him out there before me? Because as Gerald Ford went out, there was an applause of support but it paled into comparison to what was just launched for Ronald Reagan. Within a matter of minutes, sadly, Ford would essentially have the crowd put to sleep. It was the presidential advisors and the employees for the Republican National Committee, they realized one of their biggest mistakes right at that time. President Ford, as we know, lost the election to Jimmy Carter, and to give you to put this into perspective, the fact that Jimmy Carter won the election, a man from the state of Georgia, the deep southeast, the former Confederate States of America. Why am I bringing that up? Because this was Jimmy Carter was the first person elected from the deep southeast since the American Civil War ended. We had not had a president in over 110 years that was from a former Deep South Confederate state. He brought a completely new personality to Washington, D.C., something that he felt people were electing him for. And that's where Jimmy Carter misread the public. Because again, Jimmy Carter got in not so much because of votes for him as it was votes against Ford. And there is an important distinction there because Carter came in ditching the idea of the traditional sport coat or suit coat, donning the cardigan sweater, addressing the people of the United States, not from the Oval Office as was traditionally done, but rather from the executive residence with books behind him and a fireplace going off to his side. It was what he thought the people needed to move on. That may have been true, 
if America's only real concerns had to do with what was going on within the 50 states known as America. But at this same time, the United States is still in its decades-long war called the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And that is the reason why the man with the cardigan sitting talking to America from the, from the uh, executive mansion was not exactly what they felt that America was ready for or needed. At the same time, the energy crisis loomed and a renewed economic recession was continuing to falter on President Carter as, time, as his time in office continued to grind on. What's worse when it came to energy policy within the United States was the March 30th, 1979, Three Mile Island accident in Pennsylvania with a partial meltdown of a nuclear reactor. Despite the way that the press would twist that completely out of control, listeners, not one person died as a result of the Three Mile Island accidents and the injuries, if you can link it to the actual meltdown, were minimal at most. And I know that firsthand from my study in it. I know it firsthand because my father, who was a nuclear physicist, was one of the first scientists to be called out there from Argonne National Laboratory to assist with the cleanup. So these, the energy policy, the recession was continuing to dog President Carter down just as it was with President Ford before him. In terms of foreign policy, he did have a success with the Camp David Agreement signed on March 26th, 1979, where Egypt would become the first nation to accept the actual legitimate existence of the country of Israel. Why didn't that gain more traction? Because again, four days later, was the Three Mile Island accident. It's as though that Nixon, with the negative legacy left to Ford, Ford unable to govern, gets oosted by Carter. Carter comes in and is finding himself mired down with the same national and international problems. At the same time, the Soviet Union also started to work against former President Nixon's policy of detente. And remember, detente defined was that lessening of tensions. And as detente faded, it seemed as though that a looming crisis with the Soviet Union might be closer on the horizon than the people of the United States expected. And at the same time as well, the Iranian people would overthrow its own government and at the same time take several hostages who would be held against their will for 444 days from starting from November of 1979 all the way through until January 20th, 1981. You got it, on the exact day that Ronald Reagan would be inaugurated as the 40th president of the United States. So that brings us to a conclusion then of the Ford and Carter presidencies. It is with a faltering economy, high gas prices, high unemployment, inflation, skyrocketing, interest rates skyrocketing, that President Carter is still going to attempt to see if he can run for re-election. And it would be this time that it would seem that the Republican voters throughout the country would largely accept no other candidate than the man that they felt they should have had four years prior, none other than Ronald Reagan. That doesn't mean he would be running alone and unopposed, 
but the man would secure the nomination far faster than most people would have assumed. So thank you for listening. That brings us to an end of this podcast. If you liked what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well on the platform that you're listening on. And if you have any book recommendations, ideas, or questions, always feel free to email me through my website, ceconsella.com. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.